you can remain standing, if you wouldn't mind, with me this morning in honor of God and in honor of His Word, which we will read now. If you want to turn with me, we're going to be back in Acts chapter 16 this morning, and our passage will be verses 11 through 24. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy Word. Luke records this. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept on doing for many days. Paul, becoming greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas And dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated this morning and pray with me as we come to consider this wonderful, wonderful passage in God's Word. Our God and our Father... We can say amen when we read words like this that tell of your great power, your power over sin, your power over the devil, and Father, as we'll see next week, your power over all things in this world. And so God, we ask this morning as we come to your word that you would not only open our eyes and minds to its meaning, but as you opened Lydia's heart, Father, would you continue that process in us? of convicting us of the truth of your word, of convincing us of its truthfulness and its purity and its goodness and conforming us to the image of Jesus by transforming us by the renewing of our minds through the power of your word and Holy Spirit. God, thank you so much for your word. And as we come to it today, may the words from my mouth and the meditations in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come back to our study here of the book of Acts this morning, remember back with me to two weeks ago where we left off, Luke, who wrote this book as well as the Gospel of Luke, of course, Luke has been narrating for us this second missionary journey now of the Apostle Paul. After, remember in chapter 15, the monumentally important events of the Jerusalem Council where the very heart of the gospel of salvation by grace alone was definitively affirmed. And after the terrible split occurred between Paul and Barnabas, with Barnabas taking his cousin John Mark with him back through Cyprus 
to visit all the cities they had been to there. And, and Paul instead took Silas with him and went up through Syria on the mainland and back into Asia Minor from the east. Remember? And that was when they met up with Timothy. And somewhere along the way, Luke joined with them too. And so together, the four of them are traveling through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia and taking the gospel with them where they go. And we saw last time, two weeks ago, how the Holy Spirit providentially prevented this little group of apostolic evangelists from moving up north into the region of Bithynia. God would not let them even go there by some mechanism that we don't understand, but they were prevented, Luke says. And as they then moved westward through Asia Minor, God did not allow them to stop and preach the gospel in any of the cities that they passed through there. He kept compelling them somehow westward by His providence, by His leading, in spite of their own well-intentioned purposes and plans. God drove them all the way to the coast of Asia Minor in the city of Troas, where Paul saw this vision in his sleep of a Macedonian man urging him to come over to Macedonia across the Aegean Sea in order to provide help for the people there. And so, that's what they did. They allowed the Lord to establish their steps. They made plans, but when providence prevented the plans, they trusted God and allowed Him to establish their steps and to guide them. And they all sought, verse 10 of Acts 16 here says, to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel to the people there. Why not Bithynia? We don't know. Why not Asia? We don't know, but God's ways are higher than our ways. We're going to Macedonia, right? Amen. And so we come to our passage today, and and we're going to take in these verses here, 11 through 24, and they focus us in on the stories of two women, two ladies who Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke encountered along the way and in the city of Philippi. And, and Luke wants to focus us on the ways in which the Lord worked in the lives of these ladies. And there's some important things for us to glean from the stories of these ladies before we move on to what everybody knows Acts 16 for in that wonderful episode of God freeing Paul and Silas from their imprisonment by miraculous supernatural means. But... Look with me at these verses as Luke records for us. Look at verse 11. That Paul and his companions set sail from Troas, again there on the westernmost coast of Asia Minor, Turkey. And they sailed directly across the Aegean Sea to the island of Samothrace, which is out in the middle of the Aegean Sea. Stopped there very briefly, just long enough to catch another ship and set sail all the way across to Greece and to the port city of Neapolis, which is on the eastern coast of the mainland of Greece. And Neapolis sort of served as the seaport for the larger city of Philippi, which Luke tells us was the leading city of Macedonia and also a Roman colony. The little history of Philippi, it's called Philippi because Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, the the king of Macedon, named that city after himself after he captured it from the Thracians like 350 years before Paul and, and his companions ever got there. And the Roman Caesar, Augustus, had honored the city of Philippi by naming it as a Roman colony. And that meant that the citizens of Philippi, and many of the citizens of Philippi were, by the way, retired Roman military personnel, they enjoyed the status and the privileges of Roman citizenship in Philippi. That'll come to be important later next week, but hold that little bit in the back of your mind. So the Holy Spirit has led Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke into Macedonia, into this leading city of Philippi, where Luke says at the end of verse 12 there, they stayed for some days, for some length of time. It it means not a short period of time. Now ordinarily, 
you know from our studies in Acts before, it was Paul's practice when he got to a city in order to preach the gospel to wait for the Sabbath and then on the Sabbath to head straight for the Jewish synagogue, right? That's what he always did. That was his strategy because he's a Jewish person himself and he's a former Pharisee, remember? And he was really well educated, remember, in the Scriptures. And he had been discipled, in fact, by the Rabbi Gamaliel who was considered to be the greatest rabbi ever. And so, if Paul walked into a synagogue and gave these credentials, it would always earn him a hearing on the Sabbath. Please, please, Paul, speak, speak for us. And so, that threw the door open for Paul to speak, and he said whatever he wanted to say, which was the Gospel, which was that all of the Old Testament Scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. And so that's what Paul would always do. He'd go to the synagogue where the Jewish people who worshipped the God of the Old Testament Scriptures were gathered together to worship. And Paul would tell them how this one true God of the Old Testament had, had been incarnate in the person of Jesus who was the true Messiah and the only way of salvation. And so, that's what we saw Paul and Barnabas doing everywhere, right? Everywhere they went in Cyprus, all throughout Pamphylia, all throughout Galatia during the first missionary journey, Before the Jerusalem Council, this was what they did. But here, now that they get to Macedonia, now that they get to Philippi, Paul doesn't do that. The Sabbath comes, but he doesn't go to the synagogue. And there's a reason why, a really, really good reason why. And Luke hints at it in verse 13. He says, On the Sabbath... When Paul ordinarily would head for the synagogue, instead they left the city. They went outside the gate of the city and they went down to the riverside where they supposed there would be a place of prayer. Now why would they suppose that? That there would be a place of prayer outside the city near the river? Because that was the protocol when there was no synagogue. So, Why would they go there instead of going to the synagogue on the Sabbath? The answer is, in Philippi, in Macedonia, there was no synagogue. Here's why. According to Jewish custom, there had to be a minimum number of adult Jewish males, Jewish men, in any given city in order to establish a congregation, a synagogue, and gather together for worship and read the Torah and the Old Testament and pray together. And the number was ten. You had to have ten men, ten faithful Jewish men, and that, that, that quorum was called a minyan in Hebrew. Sound like our English word minions? It just means, in Hebrew, the word just minion just means number, and our English word is related back to that word. So there had to be a minion, a quorum of ten guys for a synagogue to be established and, and, and to be able to operate. And if there wasn't, then here's what you always did. Instead of a synagogue, if you were a Jewish person living in a city where there was no synagogue because there wasn't a minion, then you left the city and went to the nearest body of water, closest to the gate of the city, and you sat there and prayed and waited for others to come and pray with you. So anywhere that you went, in any city that you were in, if you were looking to worship and there's no synagogue, that's what you did. So they get, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, get to Philippi, can't find a synagogue, can't find any Jewish men anywhere, so they do what you do. They go outside. And they look for a gathering of Jewish people near the closest body of water, near the river, so that they can pray with them. And so, that's the situation in Philippi. And verse 13 says, When they left the city gate, they found the place of prayer, and there was only a group of women there praying together. No Jewish men, no rabbi, to lead or to teach only these ladies who had read the Scriptures and who had realized that the God of the Scriptures was the one true God. And so they were getting together to talk about what they've read and learned and to pray. And the great likelihood is that all of these ladies probably lived together in the same house. 
And we'll talk about that in a minute. But Paul and his companions sat down with these ladies to speak with them. Which probably would have been surprising to the women. Shocking to them. Because in the Greco-Roman world of this time, women were not highly valued. Women were not well treated. Women were not paid any kind of respect. Women were not paid any kind of attention. So for men to come and sit down, and instead of coming and saying, I see you've gathered, now let us lead you, but to sit down with them and just converse with them, to put themselves on the same level as them, was, was unheard of, really, in the Greco-Roman world. And that also was the mindset and the attitude of the ancient Jewish world, and especially of the Pharisees. And the Apostle Paul had been a Pharisee, right? Before becoming reborn? Before becoming an Apostle of Jesus? The Pharisees were notorious for looking down their noses at women. The Pharisees would never even deign to teach a woman one-on-one. In fact, the Pharisees prayed regularly, daily, in just their, some of their, their rote prayers that they repeated over and over. One of them was to pray regularly, thanking God that God had not made them to be Gentiles, nor slaves, nor women. That's the esteem with which they held women. That was the attitude of the Pharisees towards women. And wherever there were synagogues, the women sat separately from the men. You couldn't sit with your husband in the synagogue. The men sat up front where the rabbi would teach from. And the women sat in the Ezrat Nashim, which was an area in the back like a little tiny room back behind the narthex back there, the lobby maybe, and it was closed off by a wall or a curtain. And they had to sit behind that partition. So, picture it. Paul, Jewish man, grew up in Jewish culture, former Pharisee. Paul would have, before this, harbored those same kinds of disparaging attitudes towards women. And and in fact, in modern scholarship, quote unquote, oftentimes that's how Paul is caricatured, right? Because in the New Testament, Paul makes very clear distinctions between the roles that men are to play by the design of God and that women are to play. Separate roles in the church and in the home and in society By the design of God. And a lot of people in our modern age who want to argue for a very radical kind of equality where we wipe away any distinctions end up labeling Paul as a misogynist and as somebody who devalued women. But listen to me, nothing could be further from the truth. Because while Paul did affirm all of God's intended differences between the roles of men and women and those roles and designs and functions that they each uniquely have in His image, Paul in no way anywhere in Scripture makes any sort of distinction between men and women in terms of worth or value as human beings made in the image of God. And in fact, the way that Paul throughout the epistles that he writes, exhorts men to treat their wives. Because in this society, you're talking about a a culture and a society where if there's a big rainstorm and thunder and lightning and your cattle and your livestock are threatened out there and there's very little room to bring them inside, you would rather bring them inside, and customarily you would bring the livestock inside to shelter, even if it meant your wife had to sleep outside. I kid you not. And into that culture now, here comes the Apostle Paul, reborn by the Spirit of Christ, commanding men, exhorting men to treat their wives as they would treat their own bodies. 
to nurture them, to cherish them with tenderness and with care, to use their greater strength to protect their precious wives, and so on and so on and so on. Paul was, Paul was massively countercultural, both in terms of the Greco-Roman world and in terms of Judaism, in terms of elevating the worth of image-bearing human females in contrast to the culture's devaluation of them. Because for Paul, having been redeemed, having been made a new creation in Jesus Christ and saved freely by the grace of Christ and having come to understand that the gospel of God's saving grace and love towards humans doesn't make any distinctions, does it, between Gentiles and Jews or between slaves and free people or between men and women. So for Paul, his whole perspective on everything, including the inestimable worth of every human being without distinction, has been radically upended and transformed by the gospel. And that's why now here in Philippi, when he's looking for some people to share the gospel with, and the only Jewish people he can find are women, it doesn't faze Paul one little bit. He doesn't go, what should we do? He just walks right over to the river, probably has a big smile on his face, plops right down and says, Hi, ladies, what are you talking about? Can we join? There is zero misogyny in the Apostle Paul or in any of his teachings in the Bible because distinguishing between God-given roles between men and women makes zero impact on God-given worth and value of men and women. Now, there's two groups of people who think that it does, who think that distinct roles has to mean differences in worth. And the two groups are those who recognize differences in roles, and so they do devalue women intrinsically because women have different roles than men, and men think they're better. And the second group, of course, are those who want to value women equally to men in terms of their intrinsic worth, and so they argue there can't be any distinction in role or function because, see, both of those groups equate function with value, but to equate function with value is an entirely unbiblical and worldly and destructive and divisive equation. So... This is one thing that we can glean from this story here of Paul and his friends coming to Philippi and Macedonia. For these men, these Christian men, the gospel has redefined their entire perspective and appreciation of image-bearing women. The gospel has broken down all the walls between Jews and Gentiles, between slaves and free men, and between men and women because in the eyes of God, no human being matters more. No life matters less. No life is worth more or less than any other life, than any other human being. And know this, and be sure of this, it is only the world and its wicked distortion of God's design. It is only sinful people and worldly and ungodly wisdom that wants to always divide people from one another on the basis of God-given gender or ethnicity or skin color or, as, as is vogue today, by artificially dividing all of us up into social or economic groups of the oppressed and the oppressors, which is what this Marxist critical theory is doing. And it's being applied economically, politically, socially, racially, sexually, in our world today. The gospel doesn't do this. The gospel doesn't divide us up and pit us against one another as the world does. The gospel is the only thing that unites, that tears down the dividing walls, where the world enslaves people with false distinctions and false dichotomies. The gospel liberates. The gospel sets free by making it absolutely crystal clear that all human beings are equally precious. 
that we are also all equally sinful and fallen from God's glory, that we are also equally in need of salvation, that we are also equally promised salvation from sin through faith in Christ, regardless of our God-given gender or ethnicity or skin color or wealth level or social status or any other metric by which the world would divide us up and impose bondage upon us. The gospel of Jesus Christ and only the true gospel brings freedom by bringing peace with God. Now, verse 14. Luke introduces us to a specific, particular woman who was there by the river praying, and her name was Lydia. Some some wonder if this is actually her given birth personal name or not, because Luke says that she was from the city of Thyatira, and Thyatira was in the Roman province that is called Lydia. And so... It may be that this was a name that she used as kind of a title because we're going to learn she was a businesswoman. This may have been her business name. She may have been known as the Lydian lady or something like that. doesn't matter. At any rate, Luke tells us two things that are important about Lydia. One, that she was a very enterprising and successful businesswoman who sold purple goods. And two that she was a worshiper of God. So number one, the, the, the city that she's from, Thyatira, was known all around the Roman Empire as being the, the chief center of production and export of purple goods, fabrics and textiles that had been dyed purple. And that might seem odd to us to, to single that out in the modern world because we can buy anything in any color at the secondhand store. But in the ancient world, dyeing and coloring fabrics was a lot harder than it is in modern times because obviously they didn't have laboratories, they didn't have factories where they could chemically synthesize pigments and paints and dyes of different colors and hues and shades and, and mass-produce them any way they wanted. In the ancient world, they had to use what they found around them in creation to make dyes. They had to look for it in, in plants. They had to look for pigments in animal byproducts and things like this to create colorful dyes that were used for fabrics and textiles and clothing and all kinds of stuff. And one of the hardest, the hardest color to find in creation and make dyes out of at that time was the color purple. There's basically only two sources. The roots of one specific kind of plant that didn't grow widely in the empire, but it did grow in Thyatira, and or the gland of one specific kind of fish. And both of these things, this plant and these fish, were, were especially the fish, were relatively rare. And they were expensive to buy. And that's why purple came to be known as the color of royalty. Because that's typically one of the only places where you saw it in a textile. The robes of kings and princes. Not just anybody could afford to buy them. And then also sometimes in the clothing of very, very wealthy people. And so in any case, purple goods were rare. Purple goods were exclusive. Purple goods were expensive. And Lydia, who had grown up in Thyatira, had apparently grown up in this industry and now was living here in Philippi and making a good living for herself still as a seller of purple goods. And she she must have done very, very well for herself in that business because in verse 15, she invites Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to all come and to stay at her home, which meant that she had an unusually big home. Homes in that day were not like homes in our day. Homes in that day were mud brick, little huts, a single room, maybe a little guest room off to the side where one person might be able to fit. But if you lived somewhere and you could have four people over, you had a big old house. 
And so also later, it seems to indicate that when a church is established in Philippi, it, it starts running out of Lydia's house, probably because it's one of the biggest buildings in the city. So, here's Lydia. She's Roman. She's Gentile. She's not Jewish. She's wealthy. She's prominent in society. And here she is. What would you expect her to be doing on Saturday? I'd expect her to be at the marketplace, selling like crazy. But here she is on the Sabbath, outside the city, nowhere near the marketplace, not working, not selling, not conducting business, but praying with a group of other ladies from Philippi down by the river because verse 14 says Lydia was a worshiper of God. We don't know how, but she had been somehow exposed to the Old Testament Scriptures. And she had come to believe that the one God of the Bible is the only God, is the true God. Not the pantheon of Roman gods that she had grown up believing in. Not any of the false idolatrous gods of all of the pagan nations that were intermingled with her culture. This one God, she believed, was the only true God. And she was was a worshiper of Him. And here's what that means. That means that even before Paul showed up in Philippi, the Holy Spirit had already been leading Lydia and working in Lydia's mind, revealing the truth of the Word of God to her, providing her with it in the first place, and then helping her to understand it in the second place, convincing her of it, so that she would esteem the God of the Bible as the one true God. And now, the same Holy Spirit had, very, very providentially, remember, brought Paul, the former Pharisee, the student of Gamaliel, the Old Testament scholar to come and sit down beside her by the river and to show her what God had revealed to him, which of course is that everything that God reveals in the Old Testament points to Jesus, the incarnation of the true God in human flesh, and everything that Jesus had done to deliver people from the bondage of sin and death and raise them up to newness of life and reconcile them to God. And as Paul spoke with her, and no doubt, as Paul spoke with her, he was referring to every possible scripture from all across the Old Testament that had any connection to Christ, which is all of them, and showing how all of it is fulfilled in Christ. And verse 14 says that as Paul spoke with her, doing that, the Lord, look at the words, the Lord opened her heart. Her ears had heard, her eyes had read, her mind had comprehended and begun to accept. And now the Lord needed to open her heart. And he did. To, it says, mine says at least, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what he said, and I, I'd rather that that wasn't the translation, to be honest with you. Because the word that Luke uses there for pay attention means a lot more than just to listen and to, and to comprehend and to mentally focus on. This specific word has a very strong connotation of, of, of agreement and consent So, for example, the New King James Version says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to heed the things that Paul said. Or the New American Standard and the NIV say the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond positively to what Paul said. That much, much better captures in this context the meaning that Luke is driving at here because the next thing that happens is Lydia gets baptized, right? She didn't just pay attention and go, okay, I understand what you're saying. She heeded, she responded, she believed. 
the Holy Spirit had providentially led this wealthy Gentile woman to the Word of God and had begun to work in her mind to understand the Word of God, to recognize the God of the Word as the true God and to worship Him instead of going to all of the pagan temples or or bowing before the Roman or Greek pantheon. And then the Holy Spirit had providentially led Paul to her to explain how this Word of God that she had come to comprehend reveals Jesus as the true Messiah and the only way of salvation. And now the Holy Spirit opened up her heart. Do you remember the day that the Holy Spirit opened up your heart? I remember it like it was yesterday. God sovereignly put the key in the lock that moment of her sinful heart and then flung the doors wide open to see and to receive and to believe and to accept the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Now I love almost more than any hymn words, I love Charles Wesley's words in And Can It Be, right? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray and I awoke and the dungeon flamed with light and my chains fell off and my heart was free and I rose and went forth and followed thee. That's salvation, that's regeneration, that's the key in the lock, that's the Holy Spirit opening a heart. And that's what Lydia experienced here when the Lord opened her heart. John Newton's words, I once was blind, but now I see. John Newton was a godless man, right? Before he saw a worldly man. He was a slave trader. The captain at one point of a slave ship whose whole life was devoted to the industry of enslaving other human beings. Until... As desperately lost as he was, the grace and the love of the Lord found him. And until as completely spiritually blind as he was, the light of life opened up his eyes to see and to believe. I remember it like it was yesterday. The day that the Lord opened my heart. I was a high school student. I had been raised in a Christian home. I had gone to Awana and won every award you can win for memorizing Bible verses. I understood in my brain what God revealed in His Word, and I was living in absolute despicable sin. Because I didn't love this God, I didn't trust this God. My heart was in bondage until. One day in absolute desperation because of the horrible bondage and guilt and shame and fear. I ran literally from my parents' house two miles away and came here to this church. (laughs) Well, I'd been in the youth group. I used to sneak out of the youth group into the bushes and do sinful things. And I pounded on the door of the office. It's my office now, by God's providence. (laughs) Then it was the youth pastor's office. And he listened and very, very simply explained to me the same gospel I'd heard before. But he made this point of emphasizing the freeness of the gift of salvation. That it all depends on what Jesus did and that it couldn't ever depend on what I did and that if I tried to earn it, I'd always fail and that that was my problem. The source of the desperation. I didn't deserve it, but Christ did it all anyway out of sheer and divine love and all of a sudden, all of a sudden for no other reason than the Holy Spirit opening my heart the dungeon flamed with light and my chains fell off and my heart was free and I could see it. And believe it for the first time, this gospel. And my life was never the same again. Well, neither was Lydia's life. Notice, notice this, that Lydia isn't, normally if this was being recorded in, in normal parlance in this culture and in this kind of literature, 
If you mention a woman who's married to a man, you mention her as the wife of that man. And then you might mention her name. The wife of so-and-so who was called Lydia. But notice Lydia isn't called the wife of so-and-so. Notice that when Lydia's house is referred to, it's referred to as Lydia's house. Which in that culture, again, that's unheard of if she's a married woman. Notice that Lydia is a successful businesswoman in her own right. Is known in her own right and not in connection with a husband for her own success in this business. And so many people believe, and I tend to agree with them, that, that she's a single lady. Maybe she's widowed and, and, and inherited this business from her husband, or maybe she's just a single lady. Whatever the case, she was the owner. She was the master of her own business and of her own house. She didn't have a husband. There's no children even mentioned anywhere here or anywhere else in connection with Lydia. And notice that there's these other women here with her. I believe maybe they were her servants, maybe her employees, maybe other widows from the city of Philippi, maybe single women themselves or all of the above. And I believe that Lydia had taken them into her big house. And when she came to understand the words of Scripture, she shared it with them. And that's why they're all down at the river together praying. And so together, along with her, they too, I think, came to believe the gospel. And I believe that's what Luke means, at least in this case, when he says that she was baptized and her whole household with her. I don't know, but I bet it was those leather ladies. Whatever the case may be, in this story the Holy Spirit unleashed a massive display of divine and sovereign and providential mercy in the household of Lydia here in Philippi. And again, in doing that, the sovereign, gracious God demonstrates the liberating power of the gospel. People who are dead, dead, Paul uses that word, doesn't he? In Ephesians 2, in their sins and trespasses, cannot respond to spiritual truth unless the Lord opens their hearts. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And it's very interesting, the word draws that Jesus uses there in John 6.44 also used here in Acts chapter 16 and over in Acts chapter 17. It's a very, very specific word that Jesus uses. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It means specifically to employ force. Here, listen, this is the lexical definition from a Greek dictionary called Loanida's Greek Dictionary of Semantic Domains. It means um, these guys know what they're talking about. <laughs> this word means, quote, to drag or pull by force because of the presence of resistance, because the object being pulled lacks forward inertia of its own. I'll tell you what, that was me. I lacked forward inertia of my own. In fact, I was running hell-bent the other way before the Father drew me. Now look, here's, here's another place this same exact word is used. Um, they get mad at Paul and Silas for casting out the evil spirit in this woman that we're going to talk about next. And... Verse, sorry, I have to find it, 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and asked nicely, persuaded, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers by use of force because there was no positive inertia of their own to go. That's, that's this word that Jesus uses in John 6.44, also over in Acts 17. Uh, there 
in Thessalonica and they're preaching the gospel and they're staying in the house of a guy named Jason and the Jews become very enraged and they want to go and arrest Paul and Silas. So they show up at Jason's house, but they're not there right then. So they dragged Jason out of his house and before the civil magistrate. That's, it's just what this word means very specifically. And it's what Jesus says in John 6.44, very, very specifically. Unless the Father draws them, no one can come to me. See, only, only the force of the Holy Spirit opening up a dead heart and blind eyes can a person who was dead and blind and lost spiritually be made alive and see and be found. Only God has this power. Only God has the authority to forgive sin. Only God, the Holy Spirit, has the power to raise the dead and set free all who are imprisoned by the horrible bondage of sin and death. Only God can break those chains. Only Christ can loose those bonds and set sinners free from the tyranny of everlasting death and condemnation. Now, we have time to look at one more thing here. One more instance here of this life-liberating power of God. And it's there in verses 16 through 24. Luke says that after Lydia and her household were baptized, she invited them to come stay with her at her home. They accepted this gracious offer. And then sometime later, they were returning to that place of prayer. And Luke says they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination in her and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She was a slave in the most literal possible sense, chattel property to these men who were using her for financial gain because she had in her a spirit of divination. And uh, that just means, it means what you think it means. It means an evil spirit. A demonic spirit was inhabiting this girl. The word divination there is actually literally the Greek word puthona. means python. We get our word python like the snake. Literally, she, it says she had a python spirit. And here's, here's why it says that. It's linked to Greek mythology. The python in Greek mythology, I might get this wrong. My son knows a lot more about this than I do, so he can correct me afterwards. But the python in Greek mythology was a serpent that guarded the gate of the famous oracle at Delphi. Delphi was this place where, where one time a shepherd was walking and, and found a crevice in the ground and some kind of noxious gas was coming up out of this crevice and, and it caused him to hallucinate It affected his brain somehow. And so they erected a platform above this chasm and they made a woman sit there and breathe the fumes and they thought that that enabled her to prophesy and foretell the future. Give people's fortunes. And in Greek mythology, the god of prophecy, among a bunch of other things, was Apollo. And the myth goes like this, that Apollo eventually killed the python guarding the oracle and spoke through the oracle himself. And so the term python came to refer not just to a a, a biological snake, a reptile, an animal like that, but the worship of Apollo and specifically with anyone who claimed to be able to prophesy through Apollo. And so here, that's just the, the, the colloquial sort of vernacular of the word python. Here's this woman who's inhabited by an actual evil demonic spirit that's working through her to be a, a kind of an occultic kind of a medium or fortune teller. She, see, she's not just a fake. She's not just figured out clever ways to trick people into thinking that she can tell their fortunes like people on TV sometimes do. She's actually inhabited by a demon. She's speaking some utterances of a python spirit. And so she's been taken and enslaved, not just by Satan and this demon, but by this group of greedy, wicked men in Philippi who are cashing in on her fortune-telling abilities. 
They're, they're just shamelessly and mercilessly exploiting this girl for money. And this poor, exploited, enslaved girl who was, a, who was a tool of the devil, a tool of Satan, is following around after Paul and his friends, trying, according to the wicked spirit within her, to disrupt the work of the gospel. But look at how this demon in her and how Satan, through this evil spirit, was trying to disrupt the work of the gospel. She's following them around wherever they go, shouting at the top of their lungs, her lungs, these men are the bondservants of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Every word of that is true. And you might think, that is a pretty dumb way for Satan to try to disrupt the work of the gospel. What is he doing? He's affirming the Most High God. He's affirming that Paul is proclaiming the gospel. Listen to me. The fact that every word of it is true is what makes it so diabolical, right? It's what makes it so dangerous. When I was in seminary, first class I took was a class on historical theology, the development of what we believe to be true scripturally throughout the history of the church. And you know that throughout the history of the church, there were all kinds of debates and discussions because people didn't always agree on the meaning of what the scripture teaches. And some of those disagreements were so out of step with what the scripture teaches that we call them heresy and we call those people heretics, right? One of the first ones was the ancient teacher Arius who denied that Jesus is God, who taught that he was a created being just like us. There was a time when he was not. Heresy. First rule that we learned in that class, the president of the seminary stood up and said, learn this first and foremost, all heretics quote scripture. Just because they're quoting the Bible doesn't mean they're representing its, its meaning clearly. All false teachers succeed in leading people astray by appealing to God's word, by quoting God's word in defense of their false teaching. And they know how to employ just enough truth to trick you into buying the lie. This is Satan's same agenda, and this is Satan's same strategy. He's a liar, he's a deceiver. And he's happy to use as much truth as he needs to, to deceive you ultimately. He's a deceiver at the very core of his being. Jesus said, John 8, 44, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, because that's what he is. He's a liar, and he's the father of all lies. That's Satan's agenda, to deceive, and his strategy is so often to make it seem like he's representing the truth while subtly twisting it, distorting it, in diabolical and destructive and deadly ways. This is why in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about false teachers who are deceiving people by disguising themselves as apostles of Jesus. They're they're naming the name. They're, They're making themselves look like they're representing Jesus, but in reality, they're in service to the devil. What did Jesus call them? In the Gospel of Matthew, vicious, ravenous wolves who get into the sheepfold and among the sheep, how? By disguising themselves as sheep. Wolves in sheep's clothing. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that false teachers do this. They disguise themselves as apostle of Jesus And it's a no wonder they use this strategy because it's Satan's strategy too. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. John MacArthur said, some of Satan's most effective and diabolical work is done in the name of Jesus Christ. And so here is this hapless girl, inhabited by a demon, enslaved by cruel men, Satan is trying to use her as, see, an infiltrator. A wolf dressed like a sheep. 
And she's following around after Paul and his group. She's trying to identify with them by affirming them. By affirming their ministry. And see, anybody in Philippi who is, who is listening might very, very naturally assume that she's part of their group, that she's a believer. And then she could sit down with them and tell them whatever she wanted and do untold harm to their minds and to their eternal souls and to the cause of Christ and the gospel. This is what was happening. In Luke chapter 4, the same kind of thing happens. Jesus is in Capernaum in Galilee and he's teaching. And there was a man there who had an unclean spirit inhabiting him. And that demon said audibly through the man, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. See, he didn't speak heresy. He spoke truth. But Jesus didn't want any endorsements from the devil. And so he rebuked the evil spirit and told it to be silent. Shut up. You're not allowed to talk at all. No words. And then he cast that demon out of the man. So see, even if the devil says things that are true, you don't ever want to hear that and listen to that. Because ultimately he is only ever trying to entice you into eventual deception and eventual destruction. And so that was always Jesus' response to unclean spirits. One of them in Luke 4.41, one of them said, You are the Son of God. Well, precisely right. But Jesus would not allow that demon to speak any more words. And Paul here takes the same approach. This goes on for a while. The demon-inhabited slave girl follows them around for a while, saying these things, and finally Paul's had enough. Verse 18 says to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now listen, we're running out of time, but I have to say this. I, I believe that this ability that Paul had to do that, to command this demon... I believe that that ability was exclusive to Paul's ministry as an apostle. Those, those apostles, those hand-selected men, those unique ambassadors of the authority and power of Jesus Christ in the earliest days of the church were invested specially by Christ with special abilities to do unique things as the gospel first started to spread, as the, as the New Testament scriptures were, were still being written and, and commanding demons and raising people from the dead and healing them. Those were those kinds of things. They're not the ordinary normative way that God works through Christians these days. So be careful Today, all the apostles are gone. But today, you've got something better than the Apostle Paul. You have the living, active, complete, all-sufficient, breathing, powerful Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. And it is the normative, ordinary way which Paul himself teaches us in Ephesians 6. The normative, ordinary way that we wage war against the devil and the spiritual forces of darkness, the Word of God, the power of the Gospel, is the God-ordained means that the Holy Spirit works through to break the bondage of satanic lies and deceptions, to thwart all of the schemes of the devil, Paul says there in Ephesians 6 and verse 11. And to so effectively be able to resist the devil that he will flee from you by swinging the sword of the word of God. James chapter 4 verse 7. Once, last story, once a man came into my office covered in tattoos. He, was, he didn't have any hair on his head and from the top of his head as far down as I could see, every inch of him was covered with tattoos and he had piercings everywhere. And he, he reached in his pocket and he slapped a big, like, like this thick, wad of $100 bills down on the table. And he said that he wanted to pay me that money to cast a demon out of him. So I said, Jesus Christ 
is the only one who has the power and authority to set you free. So let's talk about the gospel. Because see, if the Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel, opens someone's heart, gives them new life, and then indwells them as His temple, 1 Corinthians 6.19, then you had better believe that the Holy Spirit is going to kick out any and all former occupants. The gospel, the all-sufficient power of God's word, God the Holy Spirit working through it, that's how demons are dealt with today. Well, that, that guy got up and left when I said the name Jesus Christ and when I said the word gospel. Took his, took his money with him too. I was, I gotta, I gotta confess, I was a little tempted to take his money <laughs> and to tell him that, um, that he was free now from this demon but that I needed to put him on a payment plan going forward so the demon didn't come back. <laughs> Conscience got the better of me, thankfully. I don't know if he really had a demon inhabiting him or not. Right? Nothing started floating and weird things didn't happen. Whatever the case, whatever he was really looking for, it was not real freedom because he didn't want Christ. And he didn't want the gospel. And even as these two women here, Lydia and this slave girl, illustrate and, and even typify to us in Acts chapter 16, all of humanity, everyone, is in one of two camps. You're either enslaved to sin and death and the devil, or you're liberated by Jesus through the power, through the truth of God's holy word and the gospel and through the Holy Spirit. Satan's real, don't make any mistake. He roams around like a roaring lion seeking to devour people, Peter says. He's a liar, he's an angel of light. He works all the time through people who seem like they are the sheep of God. But they're really false teachers, whether they're inhabited by actual demons or not. They deceive people, they spread destructive lies and false teaching in the name of Jesus. They're wolves dressed like sheep dressed as followers, but, but really they're diabolical and they're dangerous and they're destructive. And Satan's doing that all the time in this world, seeking to deceive, seeking to destroy. And 1 John 4, verse 4, the person of God, the Holy Spirit, who is in you, is greater by an infinite measure than he, the devil, who is in this world, seeking to deceive and to destroy and to devour. The Holy Spirit has set you free from the bondage of sin, from Satan's dominion of darkness. Even from the last enemy, death itself, you have been liberated. So lean hard on Christ in this world. Lean hard into His Word so that you can discern the devil's lies and schemes. And be able to resist him with the confidence of knowing that as you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are armed with the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. You are clothed with all the full armor of God. The devil is powerless against you. Powerless to defeat you. And you, with all of the resources of God's Word and Spirit, you've got everything that is needed. Even as he rages around the devil, even as he pesters you, even as he tries to scare you and lead you astray, even as he tries to make himself look bigger and more ferocious than the Holy Spirit is, and impress you more with his stuff than with God's stuff, you have all of the resources and everything that you need to storm the gates of hell and to wage war against the kingdom of this present darkness and to watch as Jesus sets a host of captives free and leads them into everlasting peace in the presence of God's glory through the power of the gospel. Amen? Amen. So let's pray together today that God would convince us of these things and then let's sing to Him as we come and feast on His grace at the table. Our God and our Father, how we love these stories in Your Word that demonstrate Your great power and Your great mercy and love and Your great program of freedom 
and liberation from sin and from death and from bondage and from darkness. Father, give us confidence in You and give us confidence in Your Word. And may we recognize all of the ways in which the devil is trying to tempt us and to trick us and to distract us and to trip us up and to ensnare us and to sift us. May we see it all going on in the world around us all the time and be so full of your word and your wisdom and your truth and love for you and your, the fruit of your Holy Spirit who indwells us that we would so easily be able to deflect and resist all of the ways of the devil that he would have nothing to do with us. Father, give your church power through your spirit and through your word to be able to shine the light of your truth into the darkness of this world, to be able to glorify you, to be able to go to war and to be able to be victorious because Jesus has already defeated all the enemies. And so, Father, give us confidence even as we sing now today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Page 11, O church arise, verse 2, our call to war, to love the captive soul and rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. Amen? Let's sing to our God.